0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Golders Podcast, where we aim to sprinkle particles of knowledge by engaging and educating. With your co hosts, Father and Son Duo, Keith and David Mayer. We're excited to have you on this journey with us, and we know our wide variety of world class guests will provide lots of value for our listeners. To ensure you stay up to date with everything we've got going on on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. Today, We welcome Damien Hughes onto the Golders Podcast. Damien is an organisational psychologist who focuses on high-performance environments and creating strong cultures within teams. He's a professor, consultant, has worked with some of the top sporting organisations in the world and is co-host of one of the world's top podcasts, the High Performance Podcast. This incredible interview goes in depth around what it takes to create high-performing and elite environments. It is worth noting there are times where there is a little bit of interference during the interview, but stick with it. There is so much goldish you're going to take from Damien today.
1: Well, welcome Damien and uh, listen, great for creating the time to be with us today. Uh, For those who are less familiar with who you are, share with us a little bit about your background. Well,
2: first of all, thanks uh, to you and David for having me on here, Kiefer. I've listened to the podcast, so um, I'm a fan of what you're both doing on it. And I've read your book as well. So you've got an an admirer in me here. Um, Let me explain who I am because I'm conscious that most people won't be aware of me. Um, It's probably easier to explain it. I do a few different roles. Um, One of the roles I do is I'm a visiting professor of organizational psychology and change at Manchester Met University. So my area is looking very much at how do you create uh, teams and organisations, and effectively cultures that are robust and strong enough that can cope with the kind of change that uh, sport, life, and, and uh, all other manner of uh, things can uh, can bring to bear on it. The second job I do is um, I work as a uh, consultant across a wide range of organisations, from business to elite sport to education, helping leaders sort of build cultures. And then the third job I do is I write and host a a podcast myself. Um, So the podcast is called the High Performance Podcast and the books I've done are very much around the winning mindset, uh, looking at high performing cultures, that try and sort of condense a lot of the messages in sort of easy accessible forms. So those three roles probably best explain the nature of the work that I do.
1: Well, you've you've certainly got a busy life. That's for sure. And now, as a young lad, you were you brought up in around a, a boxing family. Your dad, Brian uh, Brian News MBE, uh, yep. a, a very well respected boxing coach in the in the Manchester area, where he, I think, if I got it right, he, uh, he was coach at Collierston, Moss and Uh That's right. Yeah. <laughs> when you were in around that, you know, when you're building, watching your dad build these strong relationships with the lads. Uh, And probably some of the girls in actual fact. What life lessons did you take from being around their environment?
2: Well, it's a a brilliant question, Keith. I think, so I feel incredibly fortunate that you're right. um, I grew up in this environment. So to give some context for listeners, um, in terms of my background, I feel incredibly fortunate, Keith, that uh, um, long before I was born, uh, my, my dad had set up the uh, the boxing club uh, in the north of Manchester. Now, like a lot of people, uh, or like a lot of boxing clubs, they're often based in inner cities, in often sort of uh, uh, quite uh, troubled or poor neighbourhoods. And that was certainly the case of where we'd grown up. So at one stage in the late 1980s, uh, it was categorised as Europe's third poorest district. And I mentioned that to give you an idea of the kind of, sort of social deprivation that a lot of the people from the community have come from. Well, that was where my dad was from. And that was why he was keen to make a difference. So, so I think the boxing club was never about boxing, if that made sense. Um, it was often just a sanctuary for people to come into and escape from some of the difficulties of life. Um, and I grew up in this environment. And I think what it gave me was uh, an appreciation of two things. One, it gave me an appreciation of the power of culture. Now, um, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this as a kid. This is very much in my adult life. I've to make sense of it. That we often talk about, we don't do research, we do research where we try and make sense of our lives. And moral judgment of effing and blinding was a problem. But what, we were, what it was explained to people was that if you can't think of anything better to say than a swear word, that indicates that you lack discipline to control your mouth. And if you lack discipline to control your mouth and your thoughts in a boxing ring, you'll lack discipline to follow a plan. So you'll get hurt. So I talk with teams now about this idea of trademark behaviors. So in the boxing club, discipline was a trademark behavior that wasn't negotiable. But the second thing that I think in this environment was just the real appreciation of coaching and the difference coaching can make. So, I was fortunate that I was seeing like great coaches work in the shadows, don't they? They're, they're, it's about the building relationships, it's about the hard work investment that all goes on in the shadows. One of the, the best coaches in his industry, and could really begin to appreciate the work. So I wasn't blinded by the bright lights of the night of a fight when he had guys winning world titles. What had always struck me was the years of hard work and investment that got in. To get somebody to be able to live pressure, so I'll give you a really quick story around it. I, so when I sort of um, grown up, I I started to help my dad in the corner of fights. So I used to go with him uh, in the fights. And my job was like literally just having the book here and things like that. So I wasn't doing anything in terms of any kind of messages. But there was one night um, we were out in uh, Italy, in Milan, with dad. Had, And he was boxing a guy called Vincenzo Nardiello. And I'd seen all the game plan, I'd seen all the preparation, the months of training camp going into it. And my job was literally, I would tell the corner, you've got 10 seconds before they had to get in. So I would just warn them to get ready for the end of the round. And we were coming up to the end of the sixth round. And I remember thinking in my head, what would I say? Now, if it was my responsibility to get in that ring and deliver instructions, what would I say? because the fight was going brilliantly. The fighter we were working with was boxing to the game plan. He was winning on points and everything was going well. And I remember coming up with three options in my head. I was thinking if that was me now, I'd get in that ring and I'd either say something like, keep going and give him some encouragement. I might caution him and say, don't get lazy. Or I might just repeat the game plan and say, remember this key point. So. When the round ended and the boxer came to the corner, I was there, I carried the spit bucket up and my dad delivered a message in just five words. So he got in the corner and he said to the guy, he was called Robin Reed, the, the lad fighting. He said to Robin Reed, he said, sit down when you punch. And Reed sort of looked at him again and he just said, sit down when you punch. Are you okay with that? And he nodded and he went, Yeah. And he went out and in the next minute of the next round he went and knocked his opponent out to win the world title now that might sound a really simple example, but what struck me then was it was the courage to go in and not overcoach to deliver a coaching message in just five words now if anyone listened to this I go, well what does that mean? sit down when you punch means that the whole game plan the fight had been to box on the back foot. And what that means is you keep moving all the time. So you keep a, a moving target is a more difficult one to hit, but you need high levels of stamina to be able to do it. But in the work that had been going on in the preparation, they knew that this guy, Nardiello, the, the Italian champion loved to sort of set his opponents up. So if they stood in front of him, he loved to sort of trade with them. So the whole game plan had been box on the back foot. And yet this instruction of sit down when you punch was a change of plan. It was saying stop moving and when you like if you think about when you sit on the chair, you put on the floor. Now over the next few days I went back and said to my dad, I thought that was brilliant. Why did you suggest it at that moment? And his answer was to me the art of great coaching. He said, well in the fifth round, they'd noticed that Nardiello used to carry his hands really high. That was one of his signature sort of characteristics. And in the fifth round, they'd noticed that he was struggling to keep his hands up for the four rounds, So they knew he was obviously starting to get fatigued. But rather than rush in, they gave it another round to see whether this pattern was established. And they noticed that he was struggling even more, which was why they then realized that they'd exhausted him. So he was prime to be hit back, if you like. But what struck me as the art of great coaching was the ability to get in there and distill all that knowledge, all that information, into just five words that that the boxer could take on board, understand, and then more importantly, go out there and actually execute the plan. So I think those two things have sort of combined to a lot of my professional life now. So working with coaches is a real passion of mine because I know how hard the job is and how lonely it can be. So often it's it's working with coaches, to be a sounding board and a support to them, but then equally helping them understand how investing time and energy in developing
1: a culture can pay huge dividends for them. You dad have the gift of being able to recognize specific patterns of behavior and then being able to communicate in such simple, but extremely effective ways. Yeah. How old were you? It's a really good question. I think,
2: so my dad had realised quite quickly that that boxing isn't a sport that you play at. You play football, you play rugby, you play golf, but you only box. So it's not a sport where you play, you either do it or you don't. And my dad, because of that story I told you earlier about his own experiences, he, he would encourage guys that he'd say, if you've got something else to do other than box, go and do that. And even then, he'd try and put people off because he didn't want them to do something if he thought they might get hurt or, 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 or find themselves being used and abused, like I say, that he'd been. So he realised quite, this is a long-winded, me of me, a long-winded way of me explaining how he'd very quickly realised that I was hopeless as a boxer. And he said to me, (laughs) and I think he knew that I was going to get hurt. And I think he'd said to me, uh, "Why?" so he pushed me down the academic route anyway. But then in the club, he used to sort of say to me, just watch, just watch, just listen. Most of coaching is doing nothing with elegance. It's about just watching and correcting gently, especially when you get to sort of elite levels. So from a very early age, he'd sort of coach me in terms of things that, that, I'll give you another really simple example. He would always say that you would see small patterns of behavior that would manifest themselves as traits under pressure. So, for example, the guy that would always turn up late for training always told you that there was something about a lack of reliability for him. So we had one lad that, uh, that we coached for a long time that I would say he's probably one of the most talented fighters in British boxing over the last 25 years. i will be charitable and, and put that thing in. But I guarantee you've never heard of him. And the reason you've never heard of him was he came from a family that had never worked. So there was no work ethic that he had to draw on in his frame of reference. And he was the sort of lad that he would always get up to do his road. He would always do his road work when he woke up. He would never wake up to do his road work if that made sense. So he'd never set an alarm and get up and run when he, when his whole body is screaming, he didn't want to do it, but he would run when he woke up of his own accord. So, there was never anything where there was no pattern of behavior where he'd forced himself into a, into discomfort where he'd done anything that required discipline or rigor or reliability. So he'd always be five minutes late to training. And when he'd walk in the gym, he'd have some, he'd be singing a song or he'd be making a joke or he'd do something that meant that his lateness became relegated. And then what was really interesting was this guy ended up fighting for a, a a European title and it was a 12 round fight first six rounds he boxed his opponent's head off because his talent was so much better but he couldn't put his opponent away so the next six rounds became less about your ability to box it it was about your ability to be resolved and, and to dig in and just get through and bite down on your gum shield and find a way through difficult moments and he had no frame of reference in his life that he could do that so he found himself on the biggest stage of his life under pressure, and he didn't know how to get through it. So literally, his game plan went from imposing his will and his style on his opponent to just literally hanging on and doing everything he could to survive. And those last six rounds were enough that he lost the he lost the he lost the the, the, the title on a split decision. And when he was crying afterwards and expressing dismay, I remember my dad saying to me quietly, "He said he didn't lose that fight tonight." He's lost it over the last 10 years when he's refused to just discipline himself. He's refused to find those ways to dig deep. So I use that as an example that I think being an observer, a watcher and a listener was always what I saw as a real key skill of coaching. So I was encouraged to do it from a really young age that it's not coaching isn't about you being autocratic and didactic and giving instructions out and having people follow them. It's often about creating an environment for people to discover themselves, to ask questions and you get to watch and you can only do that by watching and observing. So I'll give you another example that applied to me because I, 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 this was really seminal for me that I did do a little bit of boxing and like I say, I wasn't very good, but one of the big life lessons that occurred to me was that I think I was about 14 and I was sparring in the gym with a, with a kid and I was overmatched. I was more experienced and I was better than him. And uh, I'm ashamed to say I took a liberty with the kid. So I was hitting him when it was easy to do. And rather than sort of show a bit of compassion, I sort of imposed myself on him. And I was feeling pleased with myself at the end of the sparring. And as I was getting out of the ring, my dad stopped me. said, where are you going? I said, I've finished. He said, "No, no, stay in." He said, "You, you can stay in. You've got a bit more in you." And he put in a young professional boxer with me. And for the next nine minutes, this lad just humiliated me. He didn't hurt me. He just humiliated me. He just jabbed my head off. He kept knocking my head back. He kept slipping every punch he did. And he just made me feel ridiculous. And when I got out of the ring at the end of it, my, like I had tears of frustration stinging my eyes. And my dad said to me, I "Said how do you feel?" I said, "What do you mean, how do I feel? You can see how I feel." It was a. Di-. And my dad said that's how you made that guy before you feel. And he said, don't you ever, ever take a liberty again. Don't you ever in this environment, abuse a position of power of responsibility. And he said, that's just not happening. And he said, and that's a life lesson for you. Now I can sit here 30 odd years later and recount that and it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. So it imposed some life lessons as well that said, just be kind, be decent. You, you know, it's not about abusing positions. It's about being a decent person, and part of that is observing and listening and asking questions.
0: I think for me, Damien, it's really interesting that boxing is this big match-up sport. Seen as you go in, you got to be the tough guy, and yet yeah, you go in, you're going in to hurt people. That is the aim of the game. You go in to hurt people to win the fight. And in being in your dad's gym it's very evident that that wasn't the forefront of what was going on. It was the lessons that people would carry on throughout their life. So whether it be lessons like the the guy that you mentioned that lost the European fight, it was a lesson that you took from watching him, whether it be the bad language or in the one that you've just mentioned where you take a liberty and you go in and and you you do what you do and then a a guy humiliates you – And it stuck with you. And I, I find it fascinating how in, in that environment that your dad has, he created this environment where people, it's about people. Of course it's boxing, boxing's a tool, but this is, it's a gym for the, for people to, to excel and not just as a boxer, but as a person as
2: well. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really good point, David, and I appreciate you sort of recognizing that. I'll tell you, and I sort of coded to the story, that um, three years ago now, uh, Manchester Council named the road uh, in honour of that uh, in the Collier's area of the city in tribute to the work he'd done. And uh, my dad's quite poorly now. He's got uh, advanced dementia, so he wasn't aware of the honour, but he, he, he's still with us, fortunately. And but it was a real sort of significant day for us as a family and we had like Andy Burnham the mayor of Manchester came along to unveil it and things like that and we had about 300 people turn up on this cold January day to sort of honor this road naming thing and what I'd estimate is I would say 95% of the people that showed up had never set foot in a boxing ring in their life but they'd set foot in the boxing gym so they'd never gone into the gym to learn to box but they'd gone in there as that sanctuary and when we were speaking to people and people were being interviewed for like the local paper or the local news channel they all wanted to talk about the impact that it had, had on them as people as parents as partners as professionals but generally just the impact on human on human beings that that environment had taught them and given them life lessons so i appreciate you acknowledging that because that was a really powerful point to him that it was never about hurting somebody. I mean, the actual definition of boxing is it's the art of self-defense. So my dad used to love a story that he wrote a book about a boxer from the 1940s and fifties called Willie Pep. And he used to love the story that Willie, he was from Connecticut. This guy once won a a round in a fight and he never threw a punch. So he deliberately told his trainers, I'm not going to throw a punch. And yet he still won the round because he made his opponent miss. A full three minutes he just kept slipping punches and my dad loved that essence of this isn't about going and trying to hurt your opponent particularly it's the art of also making a miss and the self defense element was a was a key characteristic mm. and that so you talk about the the road
0: that got named after your dad um and I think as coaches as teachers um and I would You would be in the category now where you probably have no idea, um, but you're you're influencing people's lives that you may have never met now. So I'm going to go back to what you are doing now. So you mentioned, are you're you're a professor of organisational psychology, um, best-selling author. Uh, You've obviously got the podcast, which you've mentioned, which I I also highly recommend for anybody that hasn't listened to it that they need to, Um, and then consultant psychologist for high-performance groups and teams. Now, these roles allow you the opportunity to influence people. Um, For you to ensure that you're truly making a difference in these uh, roles that you have, where do you get your inspiration from? And I know you've mentioned your dad previously, but where else do you get inspiration from to influence people?
2: Yeah, well, I, again, it's a really good question. Um, I think the honest answer that I say is that you can get it from anywhere. And I know this sounds a bit of a cop-out, but let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, that like, people come up to me sometimes and say, what book should I read if I want to do this? I say, read anything. Because if you come at anything with an open mind, there's something it'll teach you. You know, there's a lovely story that uh, um, I remember reading years ago about um, this guy called Andrew Lou Golden. Now, you might not know who he is. He was the Rolling Stones' first ever manager. And this guy, Andrew Oldham, tells a story that he claims he discovered Jimi Hendrix. And he tells us that once he said, very early on in his relationship with Jimi Hendrix, he said he went to a nightclub to go and watch his guitarist play. And he said it was obvious within the first couple of minutes that this fellow was hopeless. And he said to Jimi Hendrix, Come on, let's go. There's nothing we can learn here. And Jimi Hendrix went, No, no. He said, I'm stopping it. He said, "Why?" And he went, "This guy is that bad. He might do something brilliant by accident." And he was a great enough guitarist that he wasn't threatened by anybody. He was prepared. He was open-minded enough to learn from anyone and anything. And I often say, like, I'll read voraciously, but I'll read widely as well because you never know where you're going to pick up ideas or you know. So I'll I'll like your podcast is brilliant, and uh, that's not just paying lip service because. You said something nice earlier. It genuinely is brilliant because the range of guests that you've had on. So the one that I first got switched on to it was Justin Holbrook. Now I, I, I don't know Justin, but I was intrigued enough by his own experiences and the impact that he'd obviously had at St. Helens in uh, the UK in the rugby league in Super League there was enough to go, let's explore this. Let's just come at it with an open mind to understand what does he do and how does he do it? Because there's something we can always learn. There's no, and this informs a lot of my uh, approach. That I I really am quite strident with coaches where I say, don't do something because it's a gimmick. Don't follow something because you've read that somebody else does it. Be what they do, and think about how you can take the methodology and assimilate it, and make it your own. But don't do it just because you've read the my book bear, The one that I often mention is. The amount of people that say to me, oh, um, I've got my players sweeping the dressing room after a game. And you go, okay, why is that? And they go, well, I've read in a book that New Zealand rugby do that. And I say, yeah, yeah, I know New Zealand rugby do it. I'm interested. Why do you do it? And if your only rationale is because New Zealand rugby do it, you're copying. You're just following a gimmick. And I guarantee the first thing you'll do when things go wrong is you'll forget sweeping the dressing rooms. Because if you told me that, you sweep the dressing rooms because one of your trademark behaviours of your culture is respect. That now makes sense to me. And the fact that you might have followed New Zealand, but you're not doing it because of that. You're doing it because you want to enforce this message of respect or leaving uh, a, a place better than when you found it. That all makes sense. So I encourage coaches: read widely, read voraciously, but don't copy. Read and then think about how can I apply it and adopt it to become my own version not just a pay limitation of others.
0: Mm. And so you've just touched on two teams, um, similar sports, obviously St. Helens, um, and then you touched on the All Blacks. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to delve into that a little bit, that I think you'll agree with us, and you touched on it in that last answer, that success leaves clues. So successful teams, so we go with the All Blacks, the, the Patriots under Belichick and Brady. Um, Liverpool over the past few years with Klopp and obviously in the 80s and 90s, Man City, Barcelona, they've got trademark behaviours. Can you share with us what you believe to be key ingredients and and trademark behaviours of successful teams and businesses?
2: Again, it's a really good question. What I'd say is that that there's no one-size-fits-all for this, for any successful team. I'd, I'd say that um, they're all unique in their own way, and and if I can explain it, then I did some work at uh, FC Barcelona, so I spent two years back and forth from Catalonia, looking at how they did it, and I can tell you what their trademark behaviours were because they were really clear. The first one was humility. So their point was now why was this relevant to them? Well, the point was that when you get to the dressing room at Barcelona, there's a good chance you're going to be a multi-millionaire superstar huge Instagram following, young adolescent. So they would say, don't come in this environment showing off your wealth, your privilege, your status, your um, your trophies that you've won, because that would indicate that you feel a need to establish a hierarchy that you're worth listening to. Humility implies that you come in here and you've got an open mind. You're prepared to learn and listen and get better. Now, that was relevant to Barcelona because of the circumstances of playing for them. That might not be relevant if you're playing... Um, at St. Ellen's, for example, where it's still very much a working class game. Now, it might be, but that's not necessarily the case. The second one they had at Barcelona was hard work. So it's about investing in your talent, not just coming in and cruising on what you can do. But hard work wasn't just about flogging you, it was about how early do you turn up and prepare, how late do you stay and do CPD. Where do you sit when you come into meeting rooms? How much of your, of your preparation for games is self-driven versus coaching led? And then the third one was put the team above your own self-interest. So if you're ever in a situation where there might be a situation that's right for you, but not right for the team, choose a team option. So at Barcelona, they employed a bloke called Manel SDR, who's a famous water polo player. And he used to sit on the substitutes bench during games. And when everyone's watching the game, he's watching the bench. Because what he's observing is, who are the players that haven't been picked and how are they behaving now they're not in the team? Because if we've said you've got to be a team player, they're looking for the guys that are cheering their teammates on and encouraging them and emotionally invested in the game versus the guys that are sulking. Because it doesn't matter that you say you're a team player. How do you behave when you're not in the team? Now, that was all relevant for Barcelona. Now, there might be some clubs that go, oh, yeah, we've got common ones, but... When I've been doing the podcast, one of the questions we've interviewed, Ole Solskjaer, Rio Ferdinand, Robin Van Persie, Phil Neville. So they came through Manchester United in that, in that period of success. They've got very different trademark behaviours. And the trademark behaviours of Manchester United in that period, you can trace back to Busby in many ways. But the first one that they've got is relentlessness. So Manchester United never get beat. We occasionally run out of time, but we never get beat was one of Ferguson's famous comments. So it's that idea that we just keep coming at you. So we're relentless. The second one was, we play to win, not play, not to lose. So it's, we're gamblers. And then the third one was courage. You've got to be prepared. So courage requires you. Ferguson said, courage isn't about the guy that goes steaming into tackles. Courage is the guy that wants the ball when we're 1-0 down and it's the last minute of a game. The guy that's constantly showing, even when things aren't going well for him it was that moral courage that feeds in. So they were the trademark behaviors that he was selecting people for at Manchester United. So the reason I I sort of hesitate to answer the question of, can I give you a formula, David, is there is no formula. So I include that phrase you used when I work with coaches. I say, let's start from the premise that success does leave clues. So when you've had a good game, What are the behaviors that are present in that game? If you've had a good season, if you've had a good run of results, what are the behaviors that are consistently present when you've been successful? Now, the reason I start from that premise is twofold. The first reason is one, you're not trying to create something in a vacuum. So you're not trying to pretend to be New Zealand. If you don't have the capability, you're saying, let's find the evidence that you've already demonstrated. And the second thing is it's an inclusive exercise. Who doesn't have an opinion on success? You know, in fa- in in failure, people will often distance themselves and try and point the finger elsewhere. In success, everyone wants to claim some level of input. So you're finding evidence that you've already done it, so that an evidence builds confidence. And secondly, it's an inclusive exercise where everyone can play their part in shaping the behaviours that become the foundation stones for your own unique culture whatever team or organisation you're
1: working in. So Damien, uh, I mean, it's quite a comprehensive answer and it's detailed and it's very specific. You look at United and speaking to Solskjaer, Gary Neville, uh, Ferdinand were, you know, the key, the, the key trademark behaviours were relentlessness, play to win and, and courage, which has been endemic. It's been, it's been uh, embedded in over a long period of time, which then creates this strong culture of wanting to win and a desire to win. But when, you, when you're looking for any cultural architects from within a team that you're going to, to start working with, yeah. how do you actually know that cultural architect is? Because not necessarily it's the one that's always opening his mouth or her mouth. And neither no, is it, the one that actually is, you know, very... So how do, you, how do you unlock that? How do you actually find out and how do you actually allow you know, the, the, the genius from within the, within the coaching uh, team to find out who that person is or, or people in this case? It might be plural.
2: So a brilliant question, Keith. And again, what I would say is that there, so there is always a hierarchy. So in any dressing room, in any group of people, there is always a hierarchy. That's inescapable. That's part of our evolutionary wiring that we're wired that a hierarchy will emerge. So there will always be alphas within the dressing room, whether you like it or not. Now, if there are people that identify with the culture, they become cultural architects. This is a phrase from a Norwegian psychologist called Willy Raleo. If they are against the culture, they subsequently become cultural assassins where they'll undermine the culture from within. Now, your task, obviously, if you're a coach in an environment like this is you want architects as opposed to assassins in there. So how do you create it? Well, the first thing is you need to set the the parameters for success, which is where this idea of trademark behaviors comes from. When you've established the rules of the game, because... Let me go back a stage, sorry. Cultural architects often emerge on two criteria. When you get leaders within the dressing room, they often emerge because they're either technically brilliant, so they're the best players in that dressing room, or they're socially uh, gregarious, so they sort of allowed or they're outgoing and people tend to follow them. They're the two criteria that, that traditionally, if you stand back and just allow it to happen leaders will emerge on those two criteria. So if you're going into an environment where you're trying to use culture as a competitive advantage, you need these cultural architects on board. So the first thing is you set the parameters of how we judge, and this is where behaviours becomes really important. So if you say that there's a great phrase from a guy I interviewed once called Cheeky who who is a director of football at Barcelona, he's now doing the job at City and his answer to me was he said talent gets you into the dressing room behavior keeps you there so if you can identify the behaviors the trademark behaviors what i often do then is i go and ask the playing group to vote for their leaders so you do an anonymous vote and give everybody two two votes each and say who are the two guys that represent these behaviors better than anyone else so you're not asking who's the best players you're not asking for who's the loudest you're saying who are the two guys that embody whatever the behaviors you've asked for are and what you'll find is when you give a say in a dressing room of 30 guys or girls you'll get at least five leaders will emerge on that criteria they're your architects they're the people that embody the behaviors you're asking for so okay. you're right that these aren't always the ones that as coaches you would assume are the leaders so i'll give you a, a neat story that and I'll keep the club private because it because it's not fair because people'd be able to put two and two together and it and it betray confidences. But I did some work a few years ago with a Premier League team that, that were that weren't performing as well as they could. Let's put it that way. So we sat down and we put we identified our trademark behaviours and there was three again that was unique to them. So the first trademark behaviour they identified was uh, sensible hard work. And the sensible, hard, the sensible bit of the hard work thing was significant to them, that it wasn't just about running around wildly. It was about just do your job effectively. The second one they had was resilience, that they said, we're not the best team, so we're not going to win games uh, by big margins. So it's about resilience and sticking in, even when it's going to be tight. And then the third one was being a team player, right? So they were their three ba beh- three trademark behaviours. And then I got the players to vote now, they'd, they had a guy who was in the dressing room who'd come from a lower league club into the Premier League. And he'd done what any sensible lad would do. He wanted to make a career in football. He dedicated himself completely to the task of being a footballer. So his diet was fantastic. He was religious in staying behind and doing extras. His nutrition was great. He was relentless in sort of asking coaches for development. So he, he was almost like the model professional but he was despised amongst the rest of the playing group. They had this horrible phrase for him that they saw him as being busy and they thought that he didn't quite fit. But when we got these three criteria, so they were thinking of sending him back out on loan, this particular player. But when I got the players to vote for who they felt embodied, sensible, hard work, resilience, and being a team player, he was one of the five. Now, when I asked the coaches before it, they would, nobody guessed this guy would be anywhere close to it. And I remember speaking to one of the senior players about why they'd voted for him. And he gave me a great definition. He said, you didn't ask whether we liked him. You asked whether we respected him for demonstrating these behaviours. That's why I put him in. So people are very good at differentiating between personality and behaviours. So they were able to do that. And this guy went from being a bit of an outsider to being a central figure at this club for the next three or four years, he eventually got quite a big move somewhere else. But to me, it's you get the the group know who embodies these behaviours. It was Sir Clive Woodward that once said, Your like the trouble of being a coach is, is you have the same problem the Queen does. But when you walk into a room, you think the world smells of fresh pain. So as a coach, when you walk into a gym, everyone starts lifting that little bit more or, when you walk out on the training field, everybody's stretching and doing uh concentrating on what they do. The question you need to know is what are they doing when you're not there and the playing group know what happens when you're not there. They know who's, who's, who's pretending versus who's genuine and authentic. And if you set the parameters of these behaviors with the players and then give the players the scope to be able to tell you who embodies these better than anyone else, they're your architects. And then from there, if you've got the evidence and why I say you give them a vote, I always find that's helpful to sit down then with the architects and give them the numbers and say, you know what? 14 guys in that dressing room have told us that when you speak, they're prepared to listen. So it's almost like a politician. You're giving them the mandate to lead. You're saying to them, you've been given permission by 14 guys that if you don't feel that people are putting as much effort into training, you can challenge that and they won't kick back against you, they'll accept it because they know that, that, you, that, that you role model the behaviours yourself.
1: You feel you can have too many cultural architects, Dem, you know, because sometimes too many voices maybe, uh, Artson not is it's right or wrong, but, you know, if you have too many voices and, and equally, if you just have just the one voice, the group of collaborated and they just select a player, and there there they are on their own, so equally you can have not enough.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really legitimate challenge. I think think you can't have too many that I think um, there will still be a hierarchy. So the idea is you want people that will follow them, and therefore that when the leaders speak, they can back it up. So I don't think that's necessarily a problem, because that hierarchy will still distill to a core group of them. I think having too few is a serious problem for any culture because then they just become a lone voice. And when you, and it's easy to isolate the one cultural architect and, and you know, dismiss him as a crank or dismiss him as a moaner or dismiss him as that, that horrible phrase I said to use about this guy at the club I was talking, describing as busy. So the challenge is if you've only got one guy doing that, they become a lone wolf and they're easy to dismiss. The worry about having too many, I really wouldn't have that as a concern. I would see that as a healthy culture if you had lots of people demonstrating and a buy-in to the trademark behaviors you've identified.
0: It's uh, fascinating to hear that and with both with the podcast and the book. So when we, we spoke to Justin Holbrook when he got into St. Helens, they had issues within the group in regards to the performances and they were trying to do too much, it was seen at the time. And Justin, it's funny that he echoed a lot of what you just said in his environment, that he, when he came in, he set the standards. He set what it was he expected, um, but also based around what success the club had had previously too. And then yeah. after a period of time, he then got the the players to do exactly that where they wrote down who's living who's living these core values and principles every single day and and they created a leadership group and and it was very interesting for us to be in there to see that the leadership group sometimes changed. when I say it changed they had they had four to five key players that were always in it, but every week there'd be another person in, with them and and they were part of the leadership group that week that would have the voice would now be heard or they would have some sort of importance because they're in that group and um the same thing we also found was at wickham they did the they've done the same thing from from speaking to to gareth ainsworth and richard dobson they have the generals the five people yeah. that they believe are leading the culture because they live it every day um and it's i i find it fascinating
1: um, um can i just add something there dearie Because you make some great points there uh so this stuff that we're referring to here, Damien, is it's not abstract. It's something that actually at some point there's got to be an action taken then and then behaviour, uh, and behaviours you can't hide from. Physical actions. And so have you ever come across things where the you, you do and I'm you'll have to excuse me, David, because I know you've got a question here. i I'm curious to, you know, get your thoughts and opinions around that, where you come across if you like, a dysfunctional dressing room yep. uh, where things are actually said in, in the said, but, it, but when it comes round to we get out on the pitch in whatever sport that players, if it's a team sport or individual sport, oh, it doesn't actually display in, in an action.
2: Yeah, I, I, I despise these environments. You know when you go in and they've got these quotes on the wall, winners never quit and quitters never win go you know, yes they do why have you got that up it's just wallpaper it's just nonsense quotes do you know what i mean like um and i say get them off the wall because they, they mean nothing they're just background noise tell me the behaviors that you stand for and then let me see how you live them so i'll, I'll give you an example from a long time ago because i know some of the players have well spoken about this i worked in rugby league for a long time and i remember when i first went into into Warrington in this case the players were telling me oh yeah we professional we you know professionalism is one of our key behaviors and they sat in a meeting room and there was a guy that unpeeled an orange and was just throwing the peel on the floor when they walked out of the room there was bottles strewn all over it was rubbish it looked like a bummer it and what I watched was the coaching staff immediately go around and tidy up after them I remember stopping them went whoa, whoa stop it I said just leave it as it is and when they came back in I said to the players what's the name of the cleaner come in, do it. What, what are you asking that for I said, the cleaning staff is you. You've just told me you're professional. And yet your behavior, the way you've left this room, is unprofessional. It's slovenly. It's just rude and disrespectful. And so you have to constantly keep that disconnect between um, what you say versus what you do at the forefront of your mind. So I say this to coaches. I say every opportunity is a coaching opportunity if you know what your behaviors are. So I've done it with some coaches where I've said to them, when the players come in after training and they go to the canteen, go and stand at the queue where they get the food. Go and just position yourself there because you'll do more good coaching there than you will do out on the field on some days. They say, what do you mean? I say, well, go and look for the player that is at the front of the queue, that just loads his plate up with as much food as he wants and doesn't give a second thought to whether there's enough food there for the guy at the back of the queue. Because that's your opportunity to hammer home that if you team being a team player is one of your trademark behaviors, he's just transgressed that behavior because he's not thought about the team. So everything is coachable. This isn't just about coming up with nice, nice words that the amount of sports teams I see focus on this area twice in a season, Keith, they focus on it in pre-season when they think that it's the appropriate time to have this conversation. And the next time they come back and revisit it is when they've lost a few games and they're in crisis mode and they go, "Well, maybe it's culture that needs fixing. You know, they are just playing at it. They're the equivalent of putting motivational quotes up on the wall that quitters never win and winners never quit. They It's a waste of time. This is about, there's a really, there's a management guru called Jim Collins that has a really nice test. He says, he says, don't tell me what your priorities are give me access to your bank balance and your diary and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Don't tell me you're a family man. And then I see that you're never at home. Don't tell me that, that you really care about um, culture and you don't spend anything on in terms of time or money on it because you're just telling me because it's a tick box. You think that's what you should say. And that's the question that when I go in and work with coaches, you find out who's serious about it versus who just does it because it's a gimmick or they think that they should address it. It's the coaches that are doing it every day that is at the forefront of their mind and are looking for ways to reinforce and embed the culture are the ones that take this seriously. Mm.
0: And I think with the coaches, you don't say and become, you do and become. Because if you talk about it, you can, we can talk all we want about what it is we like and, and how, uh, what I want you to hear. Um, It's what you do and what you live by.
2: I'll give you a nice story on that, David. Uh, um, I interviewed, um, uh, I mentioned Cheeky then earlier and Ferenc Soriano. And they were the guys that were behind Pep Guardiola's appointment when he was a 37-year-old reserve team coach at Barcelona. And the question I asked them, because you mentioned Pep Guardiola now and everyone goes, oh yeah, it was obviously, you say, it wasn't then. It wasn't 10 years ago when they chose to go after him or 12 years ago, whatever. And I said to them, well, what gave you the confidence that to appoint him in that position as head coach of Barcelona? And they used three three criteria to assess a head coach on. And you've just described one of them there. They said the first criteria is energy. Are they up for the task? The second criteria is intelligence. So do they know what they're talking about? Can they speak with credibility? And so when they can transmit an idea, do the players just know that he's is spot on with his idea but the third criteria is integrity which is do you role model the behaviors that you're asking the rest of the team to do and what their advice was was that if you've got a coach that's got lots of energy and lots of intelligence but you've got any seed of doubt about their integrity of role modeling the behaviors don't have them said do not bring them into your club because he said they, they can be toxic and they can be smart enough and energetic enough to get away with it for years, but they can undermine and destroy your culture because players don't follow hypocrites. They're not wired to do that. So the example of Guardiola, if you go back to those trademark behaviours of Barcelona, humility, hard work and team first, they went, we had him here for 24 years at the club. We knew this was a guy that wasn't, didn't get carried away with his own importance. He was a grafter and that he was a team player. And there's a nice story that when I was doing the research on this four separate players that I interviewed, gave me a great story. They all gave me the same story completely independently about Guardiola. And it was an, it was a time when he, he took a contract from a Catalan bank called Sabadell bank to go and do some uh, lectures for their staff. And he got paid quite a lot of money for it, about a quarter of a million euros. And the Catalan press said he was greedy and he was being venal and vain. What he didn't tell anybody, only those internally at the club knew, was the money he got for it, he gave it to cleaners, canteen staff, masseurs, kitmen, ground staff. They all got a personal bonus out of this quarter of a million pounds from him as a thank you for their help. He never told anyone that. But in that one anecdote, what the players were telling me was this is a guy that's humble enough to recognise other people. Hardworking enough that he went and did a job outside of his own jobs to get the money for it. And then this is the most significant one. He put his money where his mouth was when it came to being a team player. He didn't tell you he was a team player. He just went and gave you a bonus. Now, who who wouldn't follow a guy like that that demonstrates everything that he's asking you to do? And you've got examples of it. So again, as coaches, I'd say don't ever underestimate the importance of just role modeling and creating stories for what you're doing. So there was a famous example, do you remember years ago at West Ham, where Alan Pardew famously came out and criticized the baby Bentley culture that, that was starting to creep in at West Ham. And then what car did he turn up for training in two weeks after he gave that interview? A baby Bentley. Six months after that, he was out at the door. Now I'm not suggesting that was linked, I'm not close enough to know it, but what would you feel if he's made a comment about you driving that car and then turning up in it in himself? Mm. Suddenly there's a seed of doubt there about, are you role modeling the behaviors that you're asking us to do?
1: There's some real depth of information that's been imparted both in this. Listen to your anecdotes and your stories. No, thank you. What strategies can you, can you deploy to help To help coaches really to get more from their athlete. Oh, right. Okay, I'll
2: I'll answer that by giving you a story if I can. Um, uh, Because I'll tell you one where where I felt the personal impact of this was that um, many years ago, I wrote a boxing uh, book. I wrote a biography of a famous fighter that you might have heard of called Thomas Hearns. So he was a five weight world world champion, and he and he emerged from uh, Detroit. So when I was doing the research for the book, uh, I went out to Detroit to go and uh, to go and do some uh, interview some the people. And one of the people that I'd gone out there to uh, interview was a guy called uh, Emmanuel Stewart, who he's passed away on now. But he was the head coach of this cronk gym, and over a thirty-year period, he had like twenty-five world champions. This guy was seen as phenomenal in terms of as a coach, and. I'm not going to dress it up. I found the experience quite intimidating. So I was going to the poorest part of Detroit. I didn't know anybody. I was a white English guy walking through black neighborhoods. And so I stood out for the color of my skin and my accent. And I got to the crunk gym and I was feeling a little bit out of my comfort zone, I'll confess. And this guy, Manny Stewart was waiting for me. And I get to the top of the stairs, he goes, Damien, he says, how are you mate? I said, it's great to see you today. I said, how do you feel arriving here in the crunk gym? So I, in my head, I'm thinking, that's a really lovely plight, welcome. So I thought I'll give him a polite response. So I said, Manny, so excited to meet you. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thanks for having me. Appreciate uh, your time. And he let me finish. And then he said, that's kind. He said, how do you really feel? I don't know if you've ever had verbal diarrhea, but I'm still in front of this bloke and I start babbling, I start going, to be honest, money, I feel a bit out of my depth, I know you're busy, I don't want to bother you, I won't get away, I'll be there, So start on, so he lets let's be finished, start. And then at the end of it, he goes, you stick with me. He said, thanks for being honest with me. He said, you stick with me. He said, I'll look after you, he said, you'll be fine. Now, when I got to know him a bit better, I said to him, you know, the first morning we met money." He said, yeah. I said, why did you ask me that second question? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you asked me how I was. I gave you an answer. I said, why did you say, now, how do you really feel? And he said to me, do you not get it? He said, he said that was the moment we started working together, that second question. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, when you walked up those stairs, he said, I saw a nervous-looking white English guy coming into a, a, a predominantly black gym. He said, so the first answer you gave me, oh, I'm really excited to be here told me one or two conclusions. He said, you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. He said, now, if I'm going to have you in my world, I need to know who you are. So he said, so the second question, just moved the conversation along. And when you told me how nervous you was and you didn't want to be in my way, what that then told me was you were telling lies, but you were telling lies because you were trying to be polite, which then led me to the conclusion, you were a nice enough lad. And he said, but every child that comes up those stairs in this gym, he said, feels the same way you do. They're nervous. They're frightened. They don't want to look silly. They don't want to be exposed. They're worrying if they've got the resources to cope. He said, and I think I'm the best coach in the world, but I know I can't coach you when all those fears are clouding your judgment. He said, so I invest time in, he summed up emotional intelligence in three words. He said, I work on the basis of contain then explain. He said, when you work with me, contain then explain is at the heart of it, not explain then contain. Now, the point was, he said, I need to contain your emotional state. And by doing that, I need to convince you. I know your name. I know your story. I'm interested in you. I'm working with you. I care about you. And when I've convinced you that all those factors are in place, then I can start to explain how we're going to learn to fight. But he said, but what too many coaches do is they try to explain and then contain they try they try to give you the technical detail and then convince you they care about you afterwards and it doesn't work in that way great coaching is like david said at the start of this it's about the human first and the athlete second i can train i can train the athlete if you've got a level of competence training the athlete's fine but training the person to want to listen to you and invest in you and trust you that's the bit that you can't overlook however talented a coach you are so for a lot of coaches that you see that are under pressure, they're often required to turn around the performance. They've got stats and data and information and all of that. And all of that is significant. This isn't to denigrate that, but not at the expense of the human touch, the ability to go and but like one of the guys we interviewed who's renowned for this in, in football is Mauricio Pochettino. Now, when we went and did the podcast interview with him, he invited us into his home. Now I think that tells you something about the man and his humanity, but when we get there, he's waiting for us at the door. And he spent, must've been a half an hour, talking to us about our journey, where we'd come from, stuff that made us feel like we were really special to be in his company, you know what I mean? And then when we got speaking to him about his methodology, that's where he positions himself when he when he was when he was at Tottenham and Southampton and Espanyol as a coach. He had a sofa moved to the entrance where the players had to come in every morning. And he would get there early and he'd have himself a cup of mate tea that they drink in Argentina, and he'd wait for every one of his players to come in. And every player was brought to the sofa, given a handshake, and he would ask them. He said, in that handshake, he could tell whether they were bringing a positive energy to his training ground that day. And I said, what would you do if you sensed it was a negative energy? He said, we sit for longer on the sofa till we find out why and what we can do about it. If it was a positive energy, they all know that I've acknowledged them. I care about them. They can go on the way. So this is a guy that's renowned for getting great results out of his players. And again, it goes back to the money steward idea of, you make time to see the person first and the athlete second. Mm.
0: Brilliant. I mean, the, the, so for me, Damien, we could go on forever here. And I, have a, <laughs> I have a question, or but, I had a question about the importance of storytelling. Now, it's funny that I wanted to ask that question of you today and the importance of it, but the thing that I find interesting is every time we ask you a question, you tell us a story. Every, every question you've told is a story or a couple of stories. And we, we've talked about it in, in the book around storytelling and the importance of it and, and that humans are emotional creatures. So they can run off emotion. And by telling stories that people can relate to or can give people a better idea of something, you can drive the emotion, which in turn builds a stronger connection yeah. To to either that person or to the story. And and it's also utilized and can be utilized as a powerful method method for learning. So I look at this today and you're we're asking you questions and you're relating it to something that's real life. So for example, you talk about Pochettino um, in the last one, but every every question you've answered it with something that's relatable that people can Take from and learn from, but for you, how important and, and what importance do you put on telling stories?
2: I'll tell you, it's really it's, so. It's an interesting question, to be honest, David. And, and I think it's one of those skills that uh, I'm very aware when you meet coaches the ones that are great storytellers. And and you can often go away and it'll and you'll be thinking about the story and then the coaching point drops after that. You go, ah, that was what they meant by that point. They haven't explicitly said, you need to do this. I'll just tell you a story. They'll go, uh, and they'll, they'll give you an anecdote that really sticks with you. And so I think it. I saw that at quite a young age, but didn't quite appreciate it. You'd think that they were being sort of like, just being funny or they were just being an anecdotalist but the best coaches that was how they were co- it was actually coaching all uh, all the time i mean it taps into a concept in psychology called the kolmogorov complexity which is named after a russian psychologist called alexander kolmogorov and the point kolmogorov used to teach was this that if i give you a point uh, if i so humans can remember more points when they're told within a story so you can make sense of a complex situation if there is a story that helps you to achieve that. So I was aware of it as a kid without necessarily knowing what they were doing. And then as I've got older and started to meet some of these coaches and try to understand and break down and say, what is it they're doing? Then you start to recognize what it is. Now, I, so I did a book a few years ago on, um, on Sir Alex Ferguson, looking at that. And again, speaking to players that have played with him, What I realized was that as a coach, speaking to the players, I think he had a stock of about 10 stories because players that had played for him in different eras all recounted some of the stories that he told and they almost didn't differ so much. So, what I then realized was, as well as having a story that he felt captured the essence of what he was talking about, it was when he used it that was significant. So, he told a story to the players and he would tell this. This is based on my. Uh, interviews with them he would tell it to them about March end of March every season where he would tell them a story now the story itself is obviously apocryphal but the point of it still hits home he said that when he was a kid he was walking along with his dad once he said and he walked past the building site and Ferguson said he said to the first builder what are you doing and the builder said um I'm digging an hole." Then he went to the second builder. He said, what are you doing there? He went, I'm earning like 10 pound an hour. He said, then he went to the third building. He said, what are you doing? And the builder said, I'm building this magnificent cathedral. And one day I'm going to bring my grandchildren back here and I'm going to show them this building and show them that their granddad helped to build one of the greatest cathedrals on earth. And Ferguson used to tell that story. And then he'd say to the players, which builder are you today? He'd say, are you going to be the guy that's just coming here and doing what you're told and kicking a ball about? Or are you going to be the second builder that's thinking about how much money you're earning for being here and kicking a ball about? Or are you going to be the third builder that plays your part in helping us build the greatest football team on earth that one day you will show your grandchildren footage and you'll be proud to be a part of it? And then he'd walk out and leave them to it. Now, there's, um, one of the players told me a great story that he said he delivered that message once and in, on the training ground literally afterwards. He said the had a practice match and Beckham scored a free kick. And apparently when he ran away, he was shouting at Ferguson, bricklayers nil, cathedral builders one. <laughs> I don't know if that's a true story. But I love the idea that he would tell that story in March every year of how do we just keep going and keep relentless under pressure and keep focused on the bigger picture. But I love the fact that if that's true, that Beckham has taken that, assimilated it, And without anyone telling him, he's identified which role he wants to be in that. Mm. Now, that to me is the art of great coaching, that it's a simple story, but there's so much wisdom contained within it. So I encourage any coach to say, just get stories from your own biography, from your own experiences, and then understand what's the key point you want people to take away from them. And then just practice polishing the story so it becomes interesting for people to be able to take it on board. And remember it in a in a compelling way.
1: And of course, what they do is they, they create this air of curiosity. So the learning is an intrinsic; it has an intrinsic value for that one particular learner to take away and to put pictures in their own mind of an experience that that they can relate to. Yeah. Now, just slightly slightly different slant on. The questioning and because of course what we're referring to and have spoke about quite quite openly in in lots of detail but what strategies could you you know to deal yeah. with the, the the daily stresses and go on with it and sleep with it and have it in these moments of silence
2: again it's a really powerful question that Keith I think um I'll give a few different ideas that I've that I've used with coaches that I've seen uh, them employ and be quite uh, effective with them. Um, first one I'd, I'd give is a um, really simple idea. from um, It's from a psychologist called Gary Klein, who, who works with leaders that come under pressure. And he encourages uh, leaders to engage in a process called conduct a pre-mortem, not a post-mortem, a pre-mortem. So a post-mortem, as, as, as we all know, happens after a death has occurred. You work out why did the death occur. A pre-mortem says, before you even set off on your adventure, work out what could kill you. So work out all the things that could go wrong. And then once you've established what could go wrong, work out how are you going to deal with it when it happens. So I don't call them pre-mortems. I call them oh shit moments. So when you ask coaches, how are you going to deal with an oh shit moment? Identify one. So it might be, um, so when I work with boxers, I'll give you an example of an oh shit moment there. You ask a boxer, now you have to be discreet when you do this, but you'll say to them, How are you gonna handle the moment when you get put on your backside in the ring? And they go, Oh, that won't happen to me. So they might do. No, it won't. And you say, Let's imagine you slip and the referee judges it wrong. So he still he counts that you did get put on your backside. So let's assume that happens. How are you gonna handle it? Now you can always tell the boxers that have engaged in a pre-mortem. Because sensible boxers, when that happens to them, they know the referee is going to count to eight. So they use the next eight seconds wisely. They sit down for two seconds and get the breath back. By seconds three and four, they have a look over to the corner, see what instructions they need. By uh, second five, they get up on one knee. Second six, they get back up, let the referee know they're ready. And by seconds seven and eight, they're mentally prepared to go back into the fight and they've recalibrated. Boxers that don't engage in a pre-mortem just jump up as soon as they get put down because they're desperate to prove to their opponent that they've not been hurt. So they've wasted eight seconds that they could have used for their advantage. So that's an old shit moment that they've not taken account of. So if you're working with teams, they often say, how are we going to handle a catastrophic dis- uh, mistake from one of your players? Because that's a moment that you find out people's character, so you might as well prepare for it. So with coaches, you'll often say, how are you going to handle when um, you get a disillusioned player? How are you going to handle when the board start losing patience with you? How are you going to handle uh, an injury crisis? So that you don't come out and start moaning in the media beforehand. If you've worked out a plan of how you're going to handle it, you can still retain some degree of dignity and that consistency and the integrity we spoke about earlier. So that's a really simple idea of getting coaches to plan for those disastrous moments long before those disastrous moments ever occur. That can be a really simple way. Um, Another way that I do it is talk about tripwires. So I talk about how do you build tripwires into your day that just force you to be mindful of what you're doing? So a tripwire might be, take a really simple example. I, I worked with one guy a few years ago that was going through a difficult separation from his wife and he found that whenever they spoke to each other on the phone, conversation get toxic quite quickly. So I said, why don't you just set a tripwire? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, where do, he said, "Where does most of the conversation take place? He said on the phone, I said, right? The phone is your tripwire. I said, so tell me how you want to behave. Don't tell me how you are behaving. Tell me how you would like to behave in that conversation. And he came up with three behaviors. He said, I want to be calm. I want to be polite, and I want to be confident. I said, right. I said, when the phone rings and you see your wife's name on it, what's your reaction? And he goes, I go, oh God, here we go again. So I said, right, now, I said, go in your phone and put where your wife's name comes up, underneath her name, right, calm, polite and confident. So when her name appears on your phone, you've reminded yourself of how you want to behave, not how you feel like behaving in that moment. And what that allowed him to do was, sometimes he didn't pick up the phone at that moment. When the phone rang, he might send her a text message that said, can I call you back in 10 minutes where he could give himself a chance to reflect or compose himself. Sometimes he would go into a different room and adopt a different position where he felt he could speak. If he was standing up, he could be calm, polite and confident. But all of that was just done by buying himself a trip by a moment that gave himself a chance to think about it. So when I worked with coaches, I came up with an idea years ago where I used to say to one coach I worked with, why don't you prepare your press conference before the game? He'd say, what do you mean? i say, well, we know there's only one or three outcomes to the game that's going to take place. You're going to win, lose, or draw. Now, you should be thinking about what the next week of training is going to be. So when you go in that press conference, you should have a plan for how you're going to handle any of those outcomes. So if you go in that dressing room, if you go in the press conference after the game, and you start criticising the referee because you got beat, you imagine going into the team room on Monday morning and trying to get the players to take responsibility for that loss because you've already given them the get-out. Whereas if you go into that press conference and you say, we weren't good enough, we didn't do this, and you've got a plan in place, you you keep the accountability in-house. You don't start externalising it. So that could be a trick by a, when you go for a walk before a game on a morning, on a morning Think about how you're going to handle your press conference moments rather than wait to get in there and react. So I've seen those two simple ideas. They're easy to implement, but I've seen them. I've seen coaches give them a go with some real success.
0: In in regards to coaching, if you had to list qualities of effective coaching and effective coaches, what would you put on the list and why as well?
2: Right. Okay. That's, uh, I like that question. I, I, so I did a book a few years ago called The Winning Mindset. And the reason I mention it is not to sort of look it. If that really isn't my intent, but because it answered that question, David, where I went around the world for about, about three years and I was meeting coaches from boxing, rugby league, rugby union, Australian rules, swimming, hockey, a bit like professional football, a whole raft of different coaches And I was just observing their sessions, talking to them and looking for what were the characteristics that these great coaches were doing that seemed to work. And to make it really simple, I identified five things they did. And I gave it a simple acronym called STEPS. And when I work with coaches now, I say, use STEPS almost like a shopping list in your head. So just ask yourself, how many of these five things can I achieve in the session? So what the five things were was they kept things really simple. So they wouldn't go and over-coach. They would have one point they wanted to get across and they would make sure that that was the key message, that everything was centred around that one simple message. Um, The second thing was they would would force thinking to take place by their athletes. So they would create space for, for players to ask questions or to disagree or to think about things. So it was about the art of getting them to think about it. The E bit, we've covered it when I was saying about Manny Stewart, but it was emotional intelligence. Have they shown a level of compassion and care in what they're doing? The P bit, I think this is a really key bit for coaches was make the language practical. So don't use jargon. So imagine if you've got a room of 19 uh, experts and one novice coach at the level of the novice. So don't talk about um, sort of in-house terms, make the language accessible because the experts will know what you're talking about, the novice won't. So create an environment where everybody can understand it so you have a shared language. And then the final S was, again, we covered it in the last question, tell a story. If you've got a story that you can use to illustrate the point or somebody in your coaching group has got the story, use that. To reinforce the message and leave them something to think about, so that was what I saw these great coaches doing um, in so many different domains that I just thought whilst I hesitate to describe it as a formula because I don't think there's one such thing like that they were they were present they were characteristics that were present in all these great coaches that seemed to work. In a range of different environments so I'd encourage coaches to use that almost as a as a mental shopping list if you like mm.
0: now I'm mindful of time I know oh, we, I
2: put it. so thank you for having me on it's, I appreciate it's,
0: it. it it's been brilliant now the final question for me um, what future projects should we look out for from you
2: what's coming <laughs> um, I'm curious. Um, So I think one of the things that I like doing is, so my trademark behaviours, I've got three. Um, My three are, uh, be kind. So when I talk about kindness, I talk about being kind to myself. And then if you're kind to yourself, you've got the capacity to be kind to others. Uh, So come at things through a a lens of kindness. Do things because you're curious and you think they'll be fun and engaging and, and they intrigue you. And then the third one is try and make a positive difference. So try and make a positive impact. And if I can achieve those, I feel like I'm living uh, to my values, if you like, um, and, and that reflects in my behaviors. So that's a long-winded way of saying that um, this podcast series that I described, the high-performance podcast, I've been doing it with a, the, a guy called Jay Comfrey that's a presenter on uh, British TV. On BT sport so between the two of us we've we've been lucky enough to get access to some really quite intriguing people from business sport and the arts and our whole premise is give it away for free we've been lucky enough that we give up the time to go and interview these guys and then give it away for free because that's kind doing the projects intrigues me and I think it can make a positive difference to lots of people so the plan is that we've uh, we've got some more interviews lined up for that that we'll keep just giving away uh, for free for people to be able to utilise. Um, I during lockdown I've been working on uh, on a book idea for the podcast just based on the interviews to try and distil it into ways that people can use. So we've not got a publisher or anything like that, but we're looking at how do we sort of distribute that, and then how do and then we sort of playing around with ideas about how do we take these lessons and try to get them out to more people to make a difference. So that's taking up quite a lot of time at the moment. And the reason I'm excited about it is because it goes back to my trademark behaviors. And I feel like it's something that is congruent with me, that that, it, that I can behave with integrity when I'm doing that. But beyond that, I, I, I sort of leave myself open as well to to um, to be curious and for opportunities uh, uh, as they emerge. So I've been lucky enough. I've worked with some great coaches with the Scotland Rugby Union team over the last uh, three and a half years. That's intrigued me. And then uh, I've done some work out in Australia with a team out in Canberra there with the great coaching staff there. So things like that when they come across really uh, keep, uh, keep me engaged as
1: well. Yeah, I mean, if, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, because I've been intrigued, I've been fascinated by your anecdotes, the wisdom, the understanding and depth of your your answers. So from my perspective, I've wrote copious notes, I'll put these all together in my own handwriting, for me it's in hieroglyphics uh, at the moment, but if somebody wanted to contact you, how uh, can they reach out to you?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if anyone's good enough to get this far in the podcast and, and I've listened and would like more information or anything like that, um, my website is the best way. So I've got a website called liquidthinker.com. Um, there's a contact page there and people are welcome to, to get in touch via that. And um, I always respond. It might be about 48 hours is my sort of deadline, my tripwire, but I'll always keep people in response, even if I'm traveling I'll say, I'll get back to you. Uh, so Yeah, I mean, I was on social media quite a lot um, before lockdown, and I made the decision to come off social media. Um, I read a couple of interesting books that I felt as a coach, social media wasn't particularly helping me. Um, uh, I I read a really interesting book by a guy called Jonathan Haidt that was a, uh, he's a psychologist at Virginia, and he wrote a book and said, social media does three things for us. First thing it does is you divide the world into black or white. So everything's good or bad when the reality is there's lots of things in the middle we can learn from. The second thing is it becomes almost like an echo chamber where we just surround ourselves and we have our own opinions relayed back to us. And then the third thing is that you don't, it doesn't allow you to hear conflicting views. So, so he has this phrase that says what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So it's this idea that if you never hear anything that conflicts with your own opinion, when you do hear it, it suddenly makes you feel quite affronted by it. And I just think if you tap into that idea of curiosity, social media doesn't always play back to us, our best selves. So I decided that it was, it, it, I noticed it was taking up an awful lot of my time and my young son, um, he's only 11 and he'd got a phone and I thought I'd better start role modeling better practices here. And then when I was reading that, I thought, well actually as well from a professional point of view, as well as a personal one, removing yourself from that. And so I am accessible, but via my website rather than social media
1: these days. This has been absolutely magic for creating this space to be with us, uh, to, to share so much, so much of that depth of understanding of a subject, which at times can be quite ambiguous. But you've yeah. created the art of, I think the art of great coaches is simplifying the complicated. And and you've done that in in every single answer. So thanks very much on behalf of myself and David, and the project that you're working working on with, uh, with Jay Comfries and you know, being kind and providing that those gold nuggets of of information to listeners for free is is wonderful so so thanks very much i
2: mean thank you but let me sort of thank both you and david on on behalf for your listeners as well because i'm because i'm one of them so it's been a real treat to be invited on and i'm and i'm incredibly grateful but i know that you're giving up your time you know what not I mean you're giving up your energy and you're sharing your knowledge and skills and experience both in the book that I thought was great I I said to you Keith on the feedback I think your ability to to collate your wisdom and knowledge of yours and David's and be able to present it in such an accessible and readable form I know how hard that is to do so thank you from me on behalf of your listeners as well for the time and energy that you give for the podcast and and your writing because it does make a difference to those of us that are coaches that are out there as well.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the Golders Podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com